four. And a warm welcome to any of you who may not consider yourselves an integral part of the Wallace family. If you're tuning in, we are grateful that you've done so. Our hope, our prayer expectation is this morning's worship and hearing of God's word would be a great encouragement to you. It's our intention in the first couple months of the new year to finish 1 Peter. I realize, looking at my notes, that we started it a year ago. So hopefully in the uh, next two months we'll get through the balance of chapter 4 and 5. So this morning's text, we'll be preaching from the first two verses of chapter 4. I do want to read, though, verses 1 through 6 of 1 Peter chapter 4. This is the word of our God. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though that judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Let's pray for a moment. Spirit of Jesus, open the eyes of our hearts and stop our ears to see and to hear the word of truth, to behold Christ, that we might love, adore, serve, know, and cherish him more deeply. We pray for his glory's sake. Amen. It's January 3rd. You've had three days to put into practice your New Year's uh, resolutions, if you made any. How's it going? I think I want to simplify it for you this morning. Take all those resolutions and put them under this one general heading. Why not in 2021 simply do the will of God? Thrive living for the will of God. Easier said than done. Serious followers of Jesus find that the more intentionally and resolutely they seek the heart of Jesus and the ways of Jesus, they find things that actually hurt. You need to know this if you are not yet a follower of Jesus, if you're considering the Christian faith, wondering what it is like these Bible believers, these followers of Jesus, believe and do, it's very important that you should know that the Christian life is difficult. It is 
challenging. We actually have conflict both from the outside and from the inside. Notice that Peter begins referring in this text to suffering. Since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves for the same. And then he goes on in verse 2 to allude to a conflict within. So there's conflict without and a conflict within. He says in verse 2, live the rest of the time in your flesh no longer for human passions. It seems like Peter has lassoed back into chapter 2 verse 11 where he wrote exhorting us to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against the soul. It seems like he's importing that into his present discussion, identifying two competitors to living for the will of God. So I want to ask this question. What are these two verses, the first two verses of chapter 2? What do they tell us? How do they help you thrive living for God's will. The first he says is this. It's verse 1. Arm yourself with Christ's resolve towards suffering. This verb arm had military connotations. It meant to pick up a weapon or to put on armor. Peter is saying that one of the surest ways to deal with suffering in your life persecution perhaps from those who don't understand your faith is the clear thinking about Christ's sufferings. It seems that by beginning the chapter this way, Peter is picking up thought that he gave in verse uh, 17 of chapter 3 where he writes, it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will, then doing evil. In 3.18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. This idea of suffering is still on Peter's mind. He's writing to followers of Jesus who are paying some price for identifying with the Lord Jesus in their lives. And he says the way to deal with that is to think clearly about Christ's sufferings. Arm yourself, equip yourself, fortify yourself with Christ's sufferings. So that requires us to think about what Christ's sufferings are. When theologians speak of the life of Jesus in most general terms, they categorize it like this. They talk about the sufferings and the glories of Christ. The sufferings of Christ would include that a moment Jesus was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary until his body was put in a tomb. That's the sufferings of Christ. His glories start with his resurrection, ascension, session, and ultimately his second coming. So Jesus' sufferings then could be categorized under in three ways. First, psychological suffering. Jesus was ridiculed, humiliated, scorned, misunderstood, falsely accused, scandalized for doing what is right, mocked, treated 
as a nobody and forsaken by his closest friends in his greatest hour of need. I was reading in my devotions in the Gospels yesterday when Jesus went into a room to heal a little girl who had died. He assured everyone she's fallen asleep. I'm going to bring her to life. They laughed at him. You ever been laughed at? People laughed at you. You just don't get it. You're stupid. This is the kind of psychological suffering Jesus endured. Then you have his physical suffering. When did it start? Likely in his temptation. He spent 40 days in a wilderness with no food, cold at night, hot during the day. Have you ever gone 40 days without food? There's physical suffering involved in that. The focus of the New Testament is on the suffering that Jesus endured physically during his trial, his arrest, and ultimately his crucifixion. Jesus was tortured. They plucked out the hairs in his beard. They blindfolded and beat him in the face. They beat him with rods. They placed a crown of thorn on his head such that his, the skin broke and it bled. It hurt. And then, of course, he was scourged and crucified. Died ultimately of asphyxiation, losing his breath. His psychological suffering, his physical suffering, and his spiritual suffering. His father pouring out upon him the wrath due his enemies. Being forsaken by his father, crying out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This intimate relationship of love that had never not been is now severed in Jesus' torment on the cross. There was nothing easy about it. And Peter is saying, arm yourself for suffering with Jesus' resolve to suffer. So what was driving Jesus' disposition towards this? It was a resolve, an attitude. And it's worth understanding how the Bible gives very specific content to why Jesus suffered. You have his purpose, his pleasure, and his provision for his people. It was Christ's purpose to suffer. He took all of the purpose of his life from the Old Testament. In fact, you may, we may remember back at the end of the first part of 1 Peter, Peter wrote in 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 10, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquired, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. The prophets, the Old Testament, anticipate that when Messiah comes, his life will be marked by suffering. If you have any doubt, read through Isaiah 53. It was Christ's purpose to suffer. It was also his pleasure to obey his Father in doing so. The sufferings were not in themselves pleasurable. But because Jesus himself spoke Psalm 40, I delight to do thy will. 
And John tells us in John 8 that Jesus said, I always do what pleases my Father. Then we know it pleased Jesus to obey his Father, submitting to this physical suffering. And face, in fact, facing it in the Garden of Gethsemane, Humanly, Jesus did not want to drink the cup of the wrath of his Father, but he concluded, not my will, but yours be done, because it pleased Jesus ultimately to bring glory to his Father. He knew his Father was so exceedingly worthy of his obedience, his praise, that he submitted to this suffering. His disposition towards it is it was because of his purpose, it was his pleasure, and it was his provision for his people. Jesus suffered for a greater cause. I mean, humanly, who wants to do this? He could have said, no, 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 my personal safety is my number one concern. I'm not putting up with this treatment. Not Jesus. He saw your salvation through his suffering as a higher purpose than his own safety and well-being. Loving his enemies, not his personal peace, is what drove Jesus to the cross. Hebrews 12, 2 tells us, it was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross, despising the shame. It was the joy of purchasing you, redeeming you, forgiving you, accomplishing a salvation you could by no means do yourself. It was absolutely necessary that Christ suffer and die for you because you can't save yourself. If you want to pay the penalty for your sins, it takes eternity in Hades to do so. The only way to be right with God is through the sacrificial sufferings of Jesus on the cross. He had to do this. It was his purpose it was his pleasure it was his provision of salvation for his people and what's the point beloved arm yourself with clear sight of these sufferings in order to do his will see i can't ponder i can't fix my heart down i can't enter into personally psychologically Jesus' sufferings for me and then want to indulge myself. Can't do that. This is the only power on earth to save you from self-indulgence. So Jesus says, look at the cross, come to your senses. When you who know Jesus and believe you've been saved by Jesus and want to follow Jesus, when you indulge in sin, are you not spitting in his face? Are you not pressing down the crown even further into his brow? Are you not strangling in his throat? How can we enjoy what made Jesus suffer? So arm yourself. I think too often we keep the sufferings of Christ sort of down here in these loosely held holsters around our waist. Peter is saying, get them out. Get them up. Arm yourself. Kind of what he was saying back in chapter 1, verse 15. Therefore, preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Get active with his sufferings. For example, 
you say God is sovereign, but you're still anxious. You haven't armed yourself with the doctrine of God's sovereignty. You say God will meet your needs, but you still won't give sacrificially. You haven't armed yourself with that doctrine. You say it grieves the spirit to keep lusting, yet you keep lusting. You haven't armed yourself with the power of the spirit. You say, my life does not consist of my possessions. This is what Jesus taught. And yet you keep spending money as if it does. You're not armed with that truth. You say, God judges the heart. He doesn't look at the outward appearance. But you continue to judge people by appearance and spend too much money on your own appearance. You're not armed with that truth. Soldiers who are preparing for warfare know their weapons so well that you can blindfold them and they can take their rifle apart and put it back together, blindfolded. It took time and discipline to get to that place. That's why there is no substitute if you're to be armed for this kind of warfare with indwelling sin and warfare to bring to pass the will of God in your life. You've got to take the time to be in the word of God to arm yourself with it, to think on it, to study it, to read it again and again and again. Now notice at the end of verse 1, Peter's commentary on this type of person. He says, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. <laughs> okay, Peter, here's another one of these phrases in this epistle where you scratch your head and you go, what is he talking about? Some of the commentators think this is a parenthetical reference to Jesus. I'm going to take this interpretation. I believe Peter is saying when you're the kind of person who allows the sufferings of Christ to control you, you show that you are no longer under sin's dominion. You're showing evidence that you yourself have made a clean break with sin. You live in such a way that the will of God is your true master. And that's the privilege of Christians. The gospel is good news. It not just frees you and delivers you from the penalty of sin. You're forgiven. You're accepted. You're no condemnation. You are justified in God's sight. You're freed from the power of sin. This is why I had read earlier in the service that passage from Romans 6 where Paul talks about union with Christ. You're a new creature. You're no longer a slave to sin. You have a new master, Jesus, by the power of his spirit, yielding yourself to righteousness. That's the first point. How do we thrive living for the will of God? Got to arm ourselves with Christ's resolve towards his suffering. And secondly, deconstruct your desires, and the will of God. Verse 2, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, that's the span of breath that God gives you on this earth, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Serious followers of Jesus experience a continual conflict that is unique to all humanity. Only believers in Jesus experience an internal warfare with indwelling sin. See, basically, there's only two kinds of people in the world. 
There are those who are born and in their natural state are at peace with sin and correspondingly at war with God. And there are those who, through the spoils of Christ's victory, are at peace with God and correspondingly at war with sin. Now, you may not consider yourself a believer in Jesus Christ. You say, Mike, I don't, I don't think of myself as, as being at war with God or, or necessarily at peace with sin. I understand. The fact is, this is what the Bible teaches, in our natural-born state, we're born slaves to sin, and we really don't see it for what it is. And we are born hostile to God, and we really don't see it for what it is. Sin ties tends to hide both of those realities from us so we can live sort of happy-go-lucky lives not aware of that reality. The moment you trust Christ and are united to Christ, a new person has been created, a saint, one who is set apart, one who belongs to Jesus, who has a new heart, one in whom the Spirit dwells so that you are at peace with God. Nothing to prove, nothing to lose. You are at peace with God. Everything that is true about Jesus is true about those who trust in him. The righteous life you owe God has been lived. The death your sins deserved has been paid. <laughs> the ascension you hope for one day to be the right hand of God has been accomplished. <laughs> Paul even says we're already at the right hand of God seated with Christ. And so if you're at peace with God, there's this new relationship to sin within. You are at war with sin. If you're a follower of Jesus, you woke up this morning, sin is at war with you. And so we find, beloved, you know this in your experience, that in thought, word, and deed, and even motive, you fail. You stumble to do the will of God, to fight sin. You find that pride is insidious, and it's there at every turn. There's an impulse in me, my will, not God's. An impulse in you, your desires, not God's. An impulse in our believing children, I want to be under my control, not God's. We find these desires to be incredibly strong and persuasive, and we struggle faithfully to do the will of God. Serious believers are relentlessly asking themselves, what will rule my heart? The passions of the flesh or the will of God? It's a fight. You'll fight it till the day you die. This word passion is very important in the original language of the New Testament. It was Greek. This word passion is a compound word. It comes from thumia, which means desire, and a prefix, epi, which always functions to intensify the word that follows it. So thumia is a desire. It's fine. You have lots of desires as a human being, but an epithumia becomes an over-desire, an inordinate desire, or what the translation says is a passion, or some of your translations, a lust. So for example, an over-desire for sex becomes porneia, or sexual lust. An over-desire for, for food becomes gluttony. An over-desire for money becomes greed. An over-desire for approval becomes a pleaser mentality. An over-desire for rest becomes sloth. This is what the Bible calls idolatry because it's a false god. You put something in the place of God. You've said, I need that more than I need God. I'll never really be satisfied without God and the addition of this other thing. And one of the ways you can see what these idols are is when you don't have it, you feel like dying or you rage. 
our passions jail us, fail us, and pale in comparison to the real thing. They jail us. They always demand more. They, they, they put us in a prison. I've got to have that unless you, you're working to break the power of it. They fail us. They never deliver what they promise. Oh, you have an instantaneous pleasure, happiness, a passing pleasure of sin saluted to. But oh no, they never deliver. And they pale in comparison to a life under God's control. See, when you live for your over-desires, what are you telling God? You're telling God, you are not enough. You yourself are not pleasurable. And yet, what is the reality, beloved? It's that beautiful description in Psalm 16. In God's presence, there is fullness of joy. And at his right hand, pleasures forever. If you consider yourself a person who doesn't know God yet, and you may be seeking God, that's a God you couldn't resist knowing. In his presence is fullness of joy. At his right hand, pleasures forever. This is what you're trying to get in your life, and the reason your life is frustrated is you're finding it in something that will never give it to you, God himself are lost, jealous, they fail us, and they pale in comparison. I'm personally really helped, this is going to shock those of you who know me, by the book of Proverbs here, because Proverbs gives you a wonderful contrast between what sin does and its alternate, which is called the fear of the Lord. That isn't being afraid and in terror. It's because he loves you so much, you revere him, you esteem him, you want to please him. He's so good, he's so kind, it becomes unthinkable not to do his will. That's the fear of the Lord. So look at some of these contrasts from Proverbs 28, 14. Blessed is the one who fears the Lord always, but whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity. Wow. Is your heart not every day in danger of being somewhat hardened, growing cold, tending, morphing into selfishness? Yes, it is. Here's the antidote. Fear the Lord always. Relish who God is. Look to him. Clear sight. Magnify. Make him bigger. Focus on the sufferings of Christ. Uh, I'm very helped by Proverbs 23, 17. Let not your heart envy sinners continue in the fear of the Lord all the day. All the day. You need the fear of the Lord when you get up. You need it at lunchtime. You need it in traffic. You need it when you come into the house at the end of the day. You need it at the end of the day. Continue in the fear of the Lord all the day. <laughs> and here's, here's, here's the warning, Proverbs 5, 22. The iniquity of of the wicked ensnare him. He is held fast by the cords of his sin. This is what sin does. The more you give in to your passions, the more they create a stranglehold on your soul. That's why some of you find it virtually impossible to break free from certain habits. Sin does this unless it's assaulted. Proverbs 29.6, an evil man is ensnared in his transgressions but a righteous man sings and rejoices. Thankfully, there's a way to come clean with God. Proverbs 28, 13, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. Sin wants to keep a man in secret by himself. Conceal it. No, the proverb says, confess, 
forsake them and obtain mercy. So beloved, deconstruct your passions. Unmask them for what they are. And finally, deconstruct your view of the will of God. So obviously, if I'm choosing, if I'm a man in Christ, and I'm choosing my passions over God's will, what am I saying I think is better for me? My passions. I don't think the will of God is good for me. I think my will is better than God's. You know what you need to call that? Insanity. How could my will be better than God's will? I'm out of my mind. I haven't armed myself with the truth. So what is the will of God? Theologians distinguish between at least three senses of the will of God. They talk about his decretive will. That is his decrees. This is what God is doing in, this, in the heavenly places unseen to us. He is bringing forth his purposes on earth through his, what we call his works of providence. If it happened, it was God's will. Everything that happens is God's will because God is king. God is sovereign. God is bringing to pass in earth history exactly what he wants, though he himself is not the author of sin and evil. Think about some of the clear affirmations of this from the Psalms. Psalm 47, 8. God reigns over the nations. He sits on his holy throne. Now, if he's on his throne, he's ruling. He's bringing his will to pass. Psalm 115, 3. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. He's sovereign. He accomplishes all his perfect will. Psalm 33, 11, The counsel of the Lord stands forever. Who can frustrate it? Psalm 103, His sovereignty rules over all. Isaiah 14, The Lord of hosts is planned. Who can frustrate it? What should you do with that? Rest in it. Thank him for it. Trust him that 2021 will be unfolding of his Decretive will doesn't mean you kick up your feet and do nothing. It means you seek him all the more and arm yourself with the truth of his decrees that are designed to bring about his glory and your good. Third, uh, second sense of uh, the will of God that theologians distinguish, it's his desiderate, desiderative will, which means his desires. The things God desires, he tells us clearly. For example, 1 Timothy 2.4. God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. What should you do about that? You should repent and seek the truth of the Savior. That's what you should do about it. God says he desires it. You say, well, I actually don't desire that. If I'm being very honest and frank with you, Mike, I don't desire the truth. I don't desire Jesus. I understand. None of us would in our natural state. God says... He desires that you be saved. Ask him for the knowledge of the truth. He will most certainly give it to you. Third sense of God's will, and that is his preceptive will, the precepts of the Lord, the will of the God. This is, this is what, we, uh, what we're talking about when we look at God's commandments, God's law, his statutes, things revealed in the Bible where he says, do this, don't do that. When we studied a couple years ago, the book of 1 Thessalonians, we saw an allusion to this. Paul wrote, this is the will of God for you, your sanctification. So what does God want for you in 2021? Your sanctification. We read about it earlier on in the uh, worship service. Again in 1 Thessalonians 5, rejoice always, 
pray without ceasing, and everything gets, give thanks, this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. What's he want you to do? Rejoice, pray, give thanks. <laughs> and I think this is the sense Peter has in mind here. Live in such a way that you glorify God in thought, word, and deed. So we've got to be asking ourselves what question? Why aren't we more concerned with the will of God? Why did a lot of our New Year's resolutions have to do with our welfare, as good as they might have been, and not, I want to do the will of God this year, even if it hurts? Why aren't we more concerned with the will of God? Perhaps because we don't see it for what it is. And this will conclude the sermon. I just want to show you a couple things. The Bible tells us the will of God is. So we can see it clearly and desire it. The will of God, first, is an expression of the love of God. Kids, when your parents tell you, do this, don't do that, their ultimate motive is because they love you. They want what's best for you. They know better than you what is best for you. They've lived longer than you. They have more experience. God loves us, and he wants to protect us from ourselves, left to ourselves. We will ruin ourselves and those around us. God would not have that, so he gives his precepts, his will to save us from that. So his will is always better than what you want. Isn't it better to be content than to always want more? It's better to be filled with God's spirit than with substances. It's better to enjoy sex inside marriage than outside it's better to listen and understand than to be angry and defensive with someone. It's better to be humble than to be blinded by your pride. It's better to build up others than to feel like I'm not promoting myself enough or winning the argument. It's better to be generous than greedy. Jesus said it's more blessed to give than to receive. Second reason Second thing about the will of God that might help us desire it more, it is an expression of the character of God. The law of God tells us what God is like. So, beloved, there actually can't be anything more satisfying to a human soul than being like God. Do you believe that? Be honest. I'm not so sure I do believe that. I certainly don't believe it all the time. Okay, this is a great place to begin your repentance. Get before the Lord. Tell him this is treason. This is idolatry. He's not going to condemn you. He's going to change you. Come clean. Be honest. Quit hiding. Some of us hide behind religious activities and think this makes me okay. No. Deal with God himself. Be quiet. Stop. Listen to God himself. It's a hard thing for us to do. And lastly, the will of God is a reflection of reality. See, properly understood, the precepts of the Lord, the commandments of God, the law of God, the will of God, properly understood, will crush you 
clearly seen, rightly appropriated, loving God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, your neighbor as yourself, it will destroy you. It will show you you are an abject failure, properly understood. Nobody loves God like that even for five seconds. The law of God is designed, among other things, to show you how much you need someone to keep it for you. The reality is Jesus Christ has come to keep the law where you could never keep it. Christianity is not a religion of performance by human beings. The law says do. Christianity says done by Jesus. The reality is Christ has come to keep the law in your place and that qualified him to be a sacrifice that was spotless and sinless, acceptable to his father. And that in that sacrifice, he removed all of the penalty of your law breaking in his flesh on the cross. It's back to 1 Peter chapter 2, 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Here's reality. The law will crush anyone who takes it seriously. To think you can make yourself clean in God's sight by being obedient is to look in a mirror, see all kinds of smudge and dirt and ink and paint and whatnot on your face, and think you can clean your face with the mirror. No! That mirror of the law is to drive you to Jesus and to say, thank you, you did it all. You paid it all. Jesus, thy blood and righteousness, that is our glorious dress. That's reality, beloved. There's another who lives in your place. There's another who cleanses you of the filth of your sin. There's another who puts away the penalty of your transgressions. Glory. That's the will of God. See that Jesus. Arm yourself with his sufferings. Let the power of his cross Planted in your heart, transform what you desire. It will. M most of you know that. And let's struggle together, not against one another's sins, but for each other in our struggle with indwelling sin. And watch revival break out in our midst and in our community. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we worship you as perfect law keeper in our stead, doing what we never could do. We worship you as the suffering, forsaken sacrifice for our sins, doing what is unimaginable that we do. So in you we have life, forgiveness, righteousness, hope, Reconciliation, redemption, friendship with God. Let us arm ourselves and find the will of God more and more pleasing and you more and more glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's respond with this wonderful hymn.